Good morning. Great to see you this morning. If you're here for the first time, welcome. My name's Steve. I am one of the leaders here. And uh, this morning, we're going to be wrapping up a series that we've been doing over the last few months in the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bibles, grab them, turn to the back end of Philippians, of this beautiful letter. And just to bring folks up to speed as we, we actually bring it to an end this morning, this is a letter from a, a guy called Paul who loved the church, the planted churches, and one of those churches that he started was in a place called Philippi. And Paul had a wonderful relationship with this church uh, in Philippi, and so much so that they, they would support him, he would write to them, they, he would hear about what they were doing. And this was a response letter that Paul had written to them because they'd supported him, but to bring them up to speed with what was going on in his ministry and in his life. But whilst doing that, he was simultaneously encouraging them to find their joy, to find their peace, and to find their contentment in Jesus. See, Philippi was a Roman colony. And everybody in Philippi lived under the, the Roman philosophies of the day and were called to worship Caesar. And Paul wants to encourage this small church that's probably about 10 years old to say, look, I want to encourage you in who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting, as we've read through this letter, all what Paul has said is surrounded around, around this beautiful picture that we had in chapter 2 of where we are told that the Lord Jesus Christ leaves the throne room of heaven and humbles himself to live as a man, but even unto death. He rises from death and that he ascends to be with the Father. And Paul says this, that his name is above every name and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is Lord. So in light of the truth of who Jesus is, in light of who they are as Christians who love Jesus, he wants to remind them that actually this is your king. The kingdom that you are part of is a kingdom that will never fail. And actually, as we live in the brokenness and the reality of our lives, God has graciously put people amongst us who are maturing in that. And he actually says to them, why don't you look out for those people? Those people who are reflecting the story of Jesus in and amongst you in the reality of the everyday. And in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of their anxiety, in the midst of all their struggles, they're called to lift their heads to see the wonder of Jesus and those who live for him. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks as we bring this to an end, what we've seen is that Paul has given this beautiful story of which we are to reflect and live in the light of our reality, but he brings it right down to show how it affects our reality, right down to ground level. And last week we saw that actually as those who are part of the kingdom of Jesus and have a kingdom that knows that when he returns, all things are going to be made new, that therefore we as brothers and sisters in Christ should be united because we're united in him. That actually the, the issues of anxiety, worries, struggles about what the future may bring, rather being wrapped up in them, we are to take them and bring them to him. And in bringing them to him as we pray, and as we beg to him, he will guard our hearts in Christ. He will guard us in and through this till he returns. And the beautiful thing in chapter 3, what we see is that Jesus is going to return. That Jesus has risen from the dead and we also will follow him. And because Jesus has made us his own, it's not that we have to attain this resurrection, this future hope. It's already been attained for us. So therefore we can run hard. We can run hard following Jesus in light of who he is. And now it brings us right up to the end in verse 10 of chapter 4. Let's read it together. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payments and more, and I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, and we ask that you would speak to us for your glory's sake. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave this place with real contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Of all the books in the Bible, the book and the letter of Philippians is the, the letter that I have studied and read the most, probably because it's just four chapters. <laughs> but I've, I've spent most of my time in the book of Philippians, and I, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I'm sure for those of you who've been with us or if you've read it at all, as you've gone through, there are so many verses in here that you could throw on your fridge or you could put in a, in a, in a nice uh, frame in the, in the living room and, or, or you know, on the bumper sticker of your car or something. Here's, here's a few of them. Some of you will recognize. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 1, verse 27. You know that one? Or how about this one? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, verse 6 of chapter 1. Or chapter 4, we looked at last week, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Or a verse that might bring us down a little bit and help us be humble. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Or we have that beautiful picture in chapter 2, which I spoke about, of the incarnation and the humbling of the Lord Jesus Christ. But folks, the verse that always hits me like a ton of bricks when I read Philippians, the verse that, all, the verse that always lingers with me when I read it is verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am constantly asking myself the question, do I live my life in a manner worthy of the gospel? Is my allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom, is it real? Is it real in my mind? Is it real in my heart? Is it real in the midst of my relationships? Is it real in my leadership? Is it reflected and does it pour out in my decisions, in my desires, in my hopes? in my dreams, in my finances. See, Paul is writing to a church who are surrounded by the philosophies of Rome and Caesar worship. And in light of that reality, he is calling them 
to, to live a life that is worthy of the kingdom that they are really part of. The kingdom of Jesus and his kingdom. And he's bringing it right down to the reality when I'm in an issue and there's disunity. When I'm struggling with what the future brings and I have anxiety. And this week, Paul is going to teach us and show us in the midst of all that, what is the secret of contentment? What is the secret of contentment? Now, the philosophies of Paul's day understood contentment as self-sufficiency. The Greek word would be translated as self-sufficient. I have enough. I have enough to get through these circumstances. I have enough to deal with this issue. I have enough in and of myself or what I have to get through this. This is what contentment means. Now, what is interesting, folks, that contentment in Paul's day and throughout history and in our day is a rare thing. But discontentment is everywhere everywhere. John D. Rockefeller was a businessman in the 19th century. I've been to New York and I've been up the Rockefeller Center. It's fantastic. It's really, really big. And if you ever go to New York, go up it at night. You can see all Central Park. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But John D. Rockefeller is and remains to be the richest American that has ever lived. He was worth about nearly 300 billion pounds in today's money. Richer than the Gates, richer than Bezo, Bozo, Amazon guy, whatever his name is. <laughs> richer than him. And he was asked this question. How much money does it take to make a man happy? His answer, just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. Folks, the whole advertisement in industry is designed to breed discontentment. And that, coupled with social media, not only enables us to look over the fence to see that the grass is greener, we now are able to be in the lives and follow every moment of those who have more than us, those who seem to have it all sorted, and those who have the lives that we want. Folks, contentment is really found, but discontentment is the very air we breathe. And like I've said on many a times through this series, it is one of the pillars of this cultural moment, discontent. Sean and I went to Cheshire Oaks in Ellesmere Port on Friday. For those who don't know Cheshire Oaks, it's a really nice outlet village. Really nice. And it's like a village, like a little town. And you walk and you feel all comfortable and it's wonderful. And you, you go, I went to get some Levi jeans. I've got them on. Do you like them? Levi 511, slim fit, okay? It's the only time the words slim and Steve Robbo come together is when I'm wearing my jeans. All right, okay. Slim fit jeans. But what I found as we were walking around, I'd walk past the jewelers and I'd see a watch and I'd be like, oh, yeah, that watch is better than the one I've got. Or, or that. I, need, I, need a, I need that watch. To, places like Cheshire Oaks. Sorry about that. Places like Cheshire Oaks and are fueled with discontentment. Here are a few thoughts for that. What I want collides with what God wants for my life. What I want collides with what God wants for my life. And then we find ourselves thinking, well, this is not what I wanted. 
And the way that my life has panned out is, is not what I envisaged. Ladies, forgive me for this, but as a middle-aged man of 42, this is very real for people like me and other men in this room. Discontentment seems to harbor up and bubble up so much when a man, and maybe also, ladies, if you get to a certain age, when you get to a certain age, it bubbles up discontentment. Because the way that my life has panned out is not what I envisaged. Men start life expecting so much and then reach an age where their energy drops, kids are hard work, work is difficult, responsibilities have increased, pressures are different, possible health scares, and we sit and we reflect in it and then we think, what have I done? What have I achieved? I'm a failing father, I'm a failing husband, I'm rubbish at my job, I thought I'd be earning more by now, or I've got none of these things at all, but everyone else has. See, I know that to be true because I've struggled with these things. And I know that to be true because many of you sitting in this room have told us that you struggle with these things. My life hasn't panned out the way that I envisaged it to be. Maybe that's one reason for discontentment as a Christian. Another reason for discontentment is, is that we end up grieving the life that we never had. That we compare up as, as, we, as we see it. We look around at other people and see the relationship that they have and the children that they have and the jobs that they have and the money that they have. And we look around and we, we think their kids are well behaved and they bring nothing and their kids are healthy. Or we think they're in good money and they're driving a wonderful car. And they seem to be able to get it on well with life and they have people and I have nobody. And what we do is we start to grieve a life that God has not given us. And we compare up. Or we have an entitlement to what we think life should be that is shaped by what the world says is good and right. If you don't know if that's true, go to Cheshire Oaks for half an hour and the entitlement will just bubble up. But also, folks, as Christians, we are acutely aware of the brokenness of this world and the difficulties. And if we don't take that to God, our anxieties in the midst of brokenness, if we don't take that to God, that actually leads us into despair which also leads into discontentment. See, there's some of the reasons why I think even as Christians, we find ourselves susceptible to discontentment. But when we do, we also sadly at times adopt the world's methods to deal with that discontentment. We deny it. We put a face on it. We pretend amongst the people who love us and know us the best that everything is fine. Or we use distraction, we seek to distract it, we, we busy ourselves, we busy ourselves with stuff, with work, with sports. And maybe then we'll be just be too busy to realize our discontentment. Or we deaden it. We drink too much. We eat too much. We spend too much money. We get lost in our phones. We get lost in the Netflix with a glass of wine because oh, that brings satisfaction. We deaden the reality of our discontentment. Or we compare down. See, my life isn't as bad. It hasn't turned out the way that I thought it would turn out, but thank you, Lord, that it's not like his. Or it's not like his. Or it's not like theirs. 
All of which, folks, is not living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here, in this passage, Paul says, I have learned something greater. I have discovered the secret, the mystery of contentment in any circumstance. Now, the wonderful thing is that secret is a public secret, isn't it? <laughs> the public secret there. Paul says, Jesus is enough. My contentment is found in him. My contentment is found in who he is and what he has done. See, folks, already Paul has said that he considered anything that he'd done, anything that he achieved, anything that he could put his name to or people could praise him for as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. That's all rubbish compared to knowing him. And let us not forget that Paul is writing this from prison. He's writing from prison, chained to a guard, 24-7. And he is saying, I found the secret of contentment. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. See, folks, the secret of contentment is Jesus. And Paul is saying, the secret to contentment is Jesus. And it's unconnected to our circumstances. That's my first point. The secret of contentment is unconnected to our circumstances. Verses 11 and 12. See what he says there. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, verse 11, but I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secrets of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is saying his contentment didn't and doesn't increase whether he has lots or whether he has little. Whether he has plenty or whether he has nothing. His contentment is not connected to his circumstances. And what Paul is saying there, and folks, what I'm saying to you is that a change in situation, a change in job, a change in relationship, a change in life stage will bring you the true contentment and satisfaction that only Jesus can bring. Two weeks ago, Sean and I went for a really romantic 24 hours in a hip happening place of Ormskirk, right? Okay, Ormskirk. If you haven't been to Ormskirk, it's where people go on the way to retirement. That's, that's where to go. You're Ormskirk, and then you land in Southport. And I know somebody in this room now is from Ormskirk, so no disrespect. It's my mother-in-law, so I, I've got to be careful what I say. That's what I say. But Sean and I went, and we just had 24 hours. It was just lovely. We stayed in Airbnb. We, stayed, we had food in a restaurant outside. We were freezing, but we made the most of it. And we had a wonderful time. And it was really funny. Sean, at this time of year, always has this sort of desire to get a caravan. That's how old we are. She wants a caravan. She thinks caravans are going to be the thing that, you know, set us apart. And, but anyway, we're walking from the Airbnb. And we're walking to where we were. I'm Sean, we're walking. We're just enjoying. No kids. No disrespect, kids. Enjoying no kids. And then just enjoying our time. And Sean said, oh, it's going to be great when we're retired, isn't it? <laughs> That's what she said. 42. It'll be great when we're retired. And Sean's thinking, oh, we can, you know, we can get up when we want to get up. We can do what we want to do. We can go on weekends and go away for 24 hours. It'll just, life will be so much better. There was this desire, this, it'll be so much better then. It'll be so much people shaking their heads. There's so much better then. See, the interesting thing is, folks, Interesting thing is, you might be looking at me there going, ah, oh, I'm going, we all do it, don't we? 
We all do it. My little boy, Elijah, he's 10, and he knows very well when he turns 11, he's going to get a smartphone. He knows because that's how it's been with his sister. He's going, I'm going to get an iPhone, Dad. And he's all excited because I'm telling you, Dad, when I'm 11, I get my iPhone. It's going to open up so many opportunities for me. That's the way he thinks. That's what, but we all thought like that. We all thought like that. And then as he gets older and he sees his sister's earning money, he's going to think, well, if I get a little job and I'll be able to save a bit of money. And then he realizes that he's got to obey other people as well as his parents. And he gets, oh, hang on, what's this? And then he thinks, oh, I'll go to university. Because when I go to university, I'll be able to make my own decisions. I'll be able to do my own thing. It'll be fantastic. So he'll land in university. He lands there and he gets his student loan and spends it in a week. And then on Monday, he has nothing to eat. And he's like, mommy, where are you? And he comes to realize that it's not as all it was cracked up to be. And then during university, you might think, okay, this is what I'll do. I'll, yeah, I'll get a job and then I'll get married and it'll be great. And once I'm married, because there's people in our church who are married and they just look so content. <laughs> it's not always true, folks. But then when he gets married and after a couple of years, I tell you what, a couple of kids. Kids will do it. Perfect family. We'll be really content. It'll be worth living. That'll be my purpose. We'll have our children and we'll have our children. It'll be fantastic and we'll do those things. And yeah, children are blessing. But two o'clock in the morning, you're like, what have we done? What have we done? And then it's like, I can't wait till they go to school. And then it's, I can't wait till they leave. And then when they leave and the nest is empty, it's like, what is our purpose? We thought it would be better. And then you get your caravan, retire, nursing home, death. Folks, the next stage of life does not bring the contentment that we all desire. The secret of contentment has nothing to do, and it's unassociated with our circumstances. Number two, the secret to contentment, it's something that has to be learned. Do you see that, verses 11 and 12? Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul says that he has learned in whatever situation that I am to be content. Folks, like I said before, the philosophy of the day was that contentment was a stoic sense of self-sufficiency. I have what it takes in my own resources, in my own ability to get through this situation. And this is not what Paul is saying. No, Paul had come to understand and know that through the times of plenty and through the times of having nothing, and Paul knew, folks, what it meant to have nothing. He knew that through these hardships that he was learning the importance of finding contentment in Jesus. And notice, it's not just one moment of crisis. No, it's in times of plenty. It's in times of need. See, it's the exposure of times of need and times of plenty that his contentment was learned. As he walked through those difficult situations, he, he found himself putting his trust in Christ, and Christ was enough. See, folks, learning contentment involves a regular struggle to believe that Christ is enough. A regular struggle to believe. And contentment in Christ grows when you recognize that he was and is sufficient in any given situation. And notice it's a posture of heart. Paul is saying, I have learned through the struggle of believing and knowing that Christ is enough through all different circumstances. And this has brought me to a position that when I face these issues, I'm able to say, I am to be content. Do you see that? 
I am to be content. He finds himself in a difficult situation, but because he has learned what it means to trust and know that Christ is enough, he is able to have a posture of heart in a difficult situation and say, I, I, have, I have learned that I am content. I will be content. It's a posture of heart. It's not like contentment just falls upon me. No, it's through the suffering which is the best teacher. He's come to realize that Christ is enough. And he's learned when faced with difficulties that Christ is his contentment. He trusts in the sufficiency in Jesus and that Jesus is enough in any given circumstance and he will be content in him. Number three, that the secret of contentment flows from Jesus and his strength, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This verse, right, this verse is often used as a rally cry. I've played for football teams, right? I've played for football teams. Before we've gone out to, to like, play Aintree Villa. None of you have heard of them. That's the stand that I played. All right, okay. Aintree Villa. And we've gone, someone said, the Christian team, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Come on, let's go and beat these guys 2-1. This verse is like a, a rally cry, a self-help motto for us to achieve our dreams and to achieve our goals. It uses a verse to spur us onto success, achieving in the name and strength of Jesus. Folks, I want to tell you now that when it's used like that, it's totally taken out of context, misunderstood, and misused. Totally. See, the context here is this. The word all things. That helps us. In fact, when we read this verse in other English translations of the original Greek, it says this, I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. And what are the these things? Times of plenty, times of nothing. Times of blessing, times of brokenness. See, Paul is saying the secret to contentment flows from my union with Jesus. It's him who strengthens me to see and know that he is enough, that he satisfies whatever I have or don't have, whatever circumstances I find myself in or I don't. So rather than being a verse that we should be quoting in order to gain victory, no, rather it's a verse that says, because my contentment is in Christ and that is enough, I can lose. I can lose in the strength that Christ gives me. I can lose everything and still be content because Jesus is enough. That he gives me the strength to be satisfied in him in the darkest times of loss and for me to resist the temptation of self-glory and praise in the times of plenty. Because of him, I can do all these things. See, the reason he knew this secret of contentment is because Paul was preoccupied with Christ, not his circumstances. Preoccupied with Jesus, not what was going on around him. Folks, when I used to be in the police force, I was in the police for six years when I was a young man. And when I, when I was in the police force, I learned how to drive a police car, advanced driving test, drive it fast, chase people, all that sort of stuff. And one of the things that we did, we were on the motorway and we were driving big Volvos really fast. 
120, 130, 140 mile an hour behind another car and we're really close. And the trainer kept saying to me, Steve, keep focused, keep focused, focus on what you're doing, focus on the car in front, keep focused, focus, just focus, keep focused, keep focused. Why was he saying to that to me? Because if I lost focus, we crash and we probably die. I had to be preoccupied with what I was doing, the car in front, the car I was driving, and what was going on miles ahead. Otherwise, we crash. See, folks, if we are not preoccupied with the Lord Jesus Christ, we will crash into discontentment. We will. We will crash into it. But if we are preoccupied with him in all these things, in all these things, we can do them through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? Amen. Paul has found the secret of contentment. But what's interesting is because of that verse that I love, only live your life um, in a manner worthy of the gospel, that we have this issue of the secret of contentment found in Jesus, but actually there is fruit displayed in the lives of people who do find their fruit, uh, do find their contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've just got a few words I want us to look at very quickly as, as we close up. The first one is this, the fruit of contentment is gratitude. You see that verse 10? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. See, contentment in Christ, what it does, it causes you to open your eyes to see what people are doing for you. Folks, when you are discontent, you don't see this. Or at best, you see it, but you struggle to be grateful. You do. When you don't find your contentment in Christ and you're riddled with discontentment, you, you, you find it hard to be thankful to other people. You find it hard to give glory to God. And actually, often you miss because your head is in. It is not up and your eyes aren't open. See, Paul was able, in the midst of difficult circumstances, to rejoice in God for what the church in Philippi were doing for him. Do you see that? That actually, they, 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 that he was so content that the issues of selfishness had gone that actually he was selfless and he saw what those guys were doing for him in the midst of his troubles, verse 14. Folks, it sounds like a cliche and a bit tacky, but do you have a gratitude attitude? Are you quick to be thankful for God for what others are doing? See, Paul appreciates what the church has done for him because, but he rejoices in the Lord. You see that? His gratitude ultimately is to God because God has put people like this around him to support him in the midst of his trouble. Are you content enough in Christ to see what others are doing? If you are, thank God for them and do it in front of them. Do it in front of them. Let's put aside this British rubbish that is like stiff upper lip, you know what I mean? We can't let people get too ahead of themselves. You know what I mean? We want to keep them humble. It's not your job to keep anyone humble. It's God's job to do that. And God has given you wonderful people who will walk alongside you and who do walk alongside you. The problem is some of us do not find our contentment in Christ. Therefore, we are not overflowing with gratitude to him for what is going on. See, a fruit of contentment is gratitude. Next one is this. A fruit of contentment is partnership, verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
See, a fruit of contentment leads to more than just sentiment, but to deep, real partnership. The word share has the same root word in the original Greek as the word partnership, okay? Partnership that you find in chapter one, koinonia, which isn't just a cup of tea and a bourbon biscuit. It is a deep, deep fellowship, a deep communion once, one with another, a deep partnership. See, the Philippian church partners with Paul in his ministry, not in a sentimental way, but in a deep partnership. In fact, Paul says in verse 15, doesn't he, that they were the only church that entered into this partnership with him. Now, folks, hear me. Let us not assume that just because Paul is talking about contentment, that the Philippi church were not content in Christ. I think sometimes we can think that. that Paul is mentioning this because they're not content. No, actually, they are displaying the fruit of contentment It's because they are pouring into Paul. They want to go in deep partnership with him. And for the last 10 years, that's what they've been doing. From the point of Paul planting this church, they had shared and sought to be in deep communion with Paul throughout his ministry. See, contentment in Christ enables you to partner in a deep way with those who do ministry. In a way that is more than just sentiment. And folks, when, I say about, when I'm saying about those who do gospel ministry, yes, I am talking about the pastors and those who preach the word. I am talking about the elders. I am talking about those who do the kids' lead, kids work. I am talking about those who do the music. I am those who, who talk. I'm talking about those who lead gospel communities. But I'm also talking about you. Because we are all partakers of grace, Paul says in chapter 1. And we are all partners in the gospel. And we are all united in Christ. So therefore, we should seek to partner with one another as we try and share the gospel with the world that we're in. But the reality is this, if we are discontent with who we are, where we are, the church that we're in, we're never going to do that. Because we're navel gazers, we become selfish, and we don't move towards, see, partnership, true gospel partnership is an overflow finding our contentment in Christ. And yes, they may see more people come to know Jesus. Yes, they may have more baptisms, but I am rejoice in the fact that we are partners in the gospel for the glory of Jesus. You see that? You see that? It is a fruit It's a fruit. Folks, people who don't find their discontentment in Christ become selfish and don't actually view themselves as partners in the gospel and others. Partnership. It enables us, contentment in Christ enables us in a way to see the gospel ministry is more important than what I may or may not have or the circumstances I find myself in. It's interesting, isn't it? Chapter one, Paul's in prison and he's buzzing at the fact that in prison, loads of people are hearing about the gospel. Where's his contentment? Impossible freedom or in Christ? It's in Christ. Next one is sacrifice as a fruit of contentment. Verses 10, again, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived concern for me. Revived concern, but also verse 15. Through the giving and receiving of gifts. And then it goes on to talk about the gift that they had given. See, the reason why Paul is writing this letter is because the church in Philippi has again supported Paul financially. Epaphroditus had not only shared news of the church with Paul, he had brought and shared with him the gift that the church wanted to give, verse 18 to support him in his troubles and to support him in his ministry. 
And this gift was something that they had done, verse 16, time and time and time and time again. They kept doing it. Now, folks, I want us to know that within the New Testament, the church in Philippi is known as the most generous church of the day. The most generous church in what they give financially. But they weren't only and aren't only known as the most generous church, but they were also known as the poorest church. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians when he writes to the church of Corinth, making reference to the churches in Macedonia, the church of Philippi, which is in Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, folks, as you read that and then when you see the issue of partnership, do you see how the relationship between partnership and financial support is there? Do you see that? Yeah, we partner and we love each other and we pray each other, but actually they supported him. Even though they were poor, they had earned the reputation for giving sacrificially, generously, and cheerfully to support the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ in and through the Apostle Paul. See, Paul's view of the church in Philippi, folks, is that they were co-laborers, not consumers, and not customers. Can I say this if you're a Christian? If you do not give of what the Lord has given you to the Lord, you are not a partner in the gospel. You are a consumer and you're a customer. And by the grace of God, you are more than welcome. And by the grace of God, he loves you. But you're not a partner in the gospel. You're a consumer and you're a customer. But Paul's view of them, this church, is that they're co-laborers. They're given generously, cheerfully, even in their poverty. Do you notice there in 2 Corinthians? Do you notice that? They gave beyond their means. Beyond their means. Folks, most of us live beyond our means. Very few of us will be giving beyond our means. Now hear me, I have a mortgage. I've taken loans for cars. I've spent on credit cards. But we are very quick to tie ourselves to a 30-year mortgage to buy the house that we want or a five-year loan to have the car that we want. But there's no way we would step into anything of giving beyond our means because we want to be good stewards of what God has given us. See the difference? Mortgage is not wrong. Loan is not wrong. As long as you're paying them back. You see the difference? And folks, can I speak to you if you're a Christian and you're a covenant member of Cornerstone Church? Covenant means promise. And in your covenant membership, you said, 
that you would give financially to the work of God's ministry. You would give to the Lord. To the Lord and then through his people. So if you don't give but you've made that promise, you are lying. You are lying. So can I encourage you to see the wonderful contentment that is found in the poorest church in the New Testament that is found in Christ that overflows from fruit for them to have gratitude, for them to partner, and for them to give sacrificially for the cause of Christ. Because for them, Christ was enough. Christ was enough. Christ being enough and being content in him causes us to hold what we have loosely. It enables us to have our hearts and our minds aware of gospel need more than our own because our contentment and our security and our future is in him. It's in him. Folks, do we give sacrificially unto the Lord? That's a question that I ask myself as I walk around Cheshire Oaks and buy a £50 pair of jeans. Am I quick to spend and slow to support gospel ministry? Most of the time, yes. I don't want to be that guy. See, the fruit of contentment in Christ is sacrificial living and sacrificial giving. Another one is eternal perspective. When you are content in Christ, you have eternal perspective. Contentment enables us to see what others are doing for God. So actually, see that in verse 18? See that there? That actually, I have received full payments and more and well supplies, having received it from Epaphroditus, that gift which is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Do you see that? When you're content in Christ, when other people are serving God, you see it. You see it. And if they're given sacrificially and it might be going to other people, you see it. And you're like, yes, they're given to those persons. And actually, that is pleasing to God. See, Paul is using sacrificial language. You see that in the Old Testament. We give to the God who has given us so much. John Piper says that God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. And you want to know if we are most satisfied in him? We will give with an eternal perspective to see that in our giving, in our living, and when others do it for his cause, he is glorified. And as he is glorified, we are satisfied. As we are satisfied in him, he is glorified. Amen? That's an eternal perspective. See, when we are satisfied in him, we make sacrifice for him that brings him glory. And we can't say we are satisfied with him, then hold tightly to what we have we can't say that we are satisfied in him but allow discontentment to drive the trajectory of our lives and our decisions and our hopes and our dreams folks i don't know what i don't know about you but i want to have a life that is a fragrant offering to god which pleases him that's what i want a fragrant offering to god that pleases him i deserve jack of all that i have None of it. I don't deserve my wife. I don't deserve my kids. I don't deserve this church. I don't. Why? Because I'm a busted or broken sinner. And it's by the grace of God I'm now his child. So I want to give my life for it to be a fragrance offering that he is glorified in and through. 
I want my contentment to be such that I can bring every aspect of, of, of my life to him and say, here you go, Jesus. Use me and all that I have, I give to you and use me for your glory. Because my discontentment is in the things that are going to perish. When Jesus gives me a contentment in him and in all the things that are going to last for eternity, that's what I want to live for. And folks, I want to live a life with an eternal perspective where I say to him, take my life, take my wife, take my children, take my car, take my home, take my money, take my clothes, take everything, take this church. If it means that I am more content in you, if it means that I find full sufficiency in you. Folks, do you have an eternal perspective that comes from a contentment in Christ? Or are you so discontent that you can't see the next six inches of your life? See, the fruit of contentment in Christ is an eternal perspective. And finally, the fruit of contentment is in trust. See, the fruits of contentment, gratitude, partnership, sacrifice, eternal perspective will only occur when we trust God. They just will. See, discontentment, by way of <laughs> definition, is that you don't trust God as a Christian. See, I said at the beginning that discontentment occurs when what I want collides with what God wants for my life. We think that he has got it wrong, so therefore we don't trust him. Unless we trust God, we will never be content in Christ. And Jesus will never be enough for us. He'll never be enough for us. Unless I trust the one who sent Jesus. And if our contentment is in what we have or what we don't have, we won't trust God and we won't live out and enjoy the blessings of contentment in Christ. See, verse 19 is what? It's a promise. And my God will supply it every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God will supply every need of ours, not every greed of ours, not from or with, but according to his riches. It's not like his riches are there and he'll give you a little bit and go, there you go, that should be enough. No, he gives to our needs according to this. You get that? According to this. And contentment in Christ leads to a fruit of open eyes, open hearts, open hands. And the promise is that God will meet your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. If that is a true promise, I can trust Christ with all that I have and all that I am. I can enjoy and be thankful for those who serve and love me in the midst of times of good and times of bad. I can truly have my hands open to give all for the cause of Christ. And my heart can overflow when I see righteousness being poured into the life of those who are finding their contentment in Christ. See, Paul says that, doesn't he? He says that. It's not that the gift that I want. It's actually what I'm excited by, what brings me the joy. 
is what is being accounted to your account because your contentment is in Christ and it flows out in your sacrifice and your gratitude and your partnership. You see that? The selflessness of that, the pause from an efficiency and contentment in Jesus. My question, folks, is this. Is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough? Let's be brutally honest here. I'm not just pouring my heart out for 50 minutes for nothing. Let's be brutally honest. Is Jesus enough? If your answer is no, you'll probably trace areas of your life where you are not displaying those fruits of contentment. And if your answer is no, then please come to him, repent, and trust him. Because he is gracious, and he's forgiving, and he is loving. And he wants you to come with all your discontentment and your anxiety and your disunity. He wants you to come with all the rubbish that you've got and your selfishness and your lack of awareness of other people and your lack of heart to see come to know Jesus. The fact that we're indifferent to five people have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes all of that. And he forgives us and he loves us. And again, he shows us, I'm enough. I am enough. I am enough. Folks, let me, can, let me stress this as we leave. This is not a call to be content with what I have. I've heard that prayed. Lord, help us to be content with what we have. Because what we have might not be what we have. Our prayer should be, make me content in Jesus. Let him be enough. So whether you have nothing or plenty, you know the secret of contentment. And you will be able to continue to trust him through the ups and the downs of life. Right at the end, Paul wraps it up, doesn't he? How does he wrap it up, verse 20? With a prayer to the glory of God the Father. God the Father has this. Can I tell you, he, he has this. He has your circumstances. He has it all. He has it. Then it's a call to greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. See that? We've got God the Father who has this, all the saints in Christ Jesus. We are part of God's family and the kingdom of Christ because of Jesus, and there are others in this room and all around the world. We have each other to walk with each other. You see that? It's beautiful. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, that Christ is with us in and through his spirit, and his graciousness is poured upon us. Even in the midst of our sin, his grace abounds. Jesus is more. Jesus is more, and Jesus is enough. He's enough. He's enough. God the Father calls us in and through Jesus. And Jesus gives us his spirit in the midst of his graciousness to strengthen us and to find contentment in him through the brokenness of life as we wait for him to return. Folks, this whole letter is circled around, hasn't it? The incarnation of Jesus, the humility of Jesus who gave of everything for broken, busted up people like you and me. And he's going to return and at the end of this story, your story, my story, this story, he's going to return and make all things new. He'll deal with our discontentment. He'll deal with our anxiety. He'll deal with our disunity. He'll deal with our brokenness. He'll deal with our lack of giving. He'll deal with our lack of partnership. He will deal with it all. He'll wipe our tears and he'll say, welcome home. 
welcome home, and he'll make all things new. Folks, it's interesting, isn't it? When we say, when we're trying to explain to something that something isn't that bad, and we'll say, oh, it's not the end of the world. That's a terrible use, because the end of the world is going to be a great thing. Isn't it? I can't wait for this discontentment to be gone. And Jesus promises that he will deal with it right at the end. Folks, anxiety and discontent will rob us of joy and peace. And that will distract us and make us indifferent to gospel advancement and gospel ministry. It will. It's interesting. Right at the end, Paul wants to share with the church in Philippi, especially that those who are from Caesar's house, who are now Christians, send them greetings. You see that? Do you see that? If we're discontent, it'll rob us of joy and peace, and we won't see that. We won't get excited when Ben says, five people have become Christians in the last year. We should have clapped, folks. I just, just need to say that. Because we can't shout, we can't sing, but we can clap. We should have. Maybe it's our discontentment with this last 12 months that has brought us to the point that we're even indifferent when people who are in this room now have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in the worst situation our lifetimes have ever known. Maybe that's a challenge for us as a church. Maybe our responses should be different. Maybe that's an indicator of a discontent. But when you find your content in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will bring you a joy and a peace and a contentment in all circumstances. So even the times of difficulty and the times of great joy, when you hear that people have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, your heart overflows. They know, oh my word, even somebody from that area of Liverpool has come to know the Lord Jesus. Even somebody with that background has come to know the Lord Jesus. Even that person that used to laugh at me now comes to know, has come to know Jesus. Folks, we are here serving God's people, God as his people for the sake of his glory and for those who do not know him. That's, that's bottom line. That is it. To bring him glory as we proclaim and live out the gospel. So if our contentment is not in him, we're not going to be able to do that. So in Christ, in his strength, come to him and be content for his glory. And I'm telling you, you will have peace of soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, he has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My prayer is that we go and live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ with a contentment that overflows, that opens our eyes to gospel advancements for the glory of Jesus in Liverpool, Merseyside, and the world. And all God's people will say, amen. Amen. Folks, the music team are going to come up now. And as they come up, I want to share with them what this is what we're going to do. The reality is this. The reality is this. All what I have said and all what has been preached through the book of Philippians is true. That's reality. But that comes alongside and collides with brokenness, anxiety, discontent, fear, worry for the future, worry for our children, worry for our lives, worry for our partnerships, worry for, for people's salvations, all those issues. But the truth of what we read in Philippians is such that Jesus has come 
saved, remained, and will restore. Restore all those things. And he walks with us in the brutalness of our realities. Nowhere, nowhere does it say, nowhere does it say, bring your prayers and your anxiety will go. It doesn't say that. It says it will, Jesus will guard your hearts. The peace of God will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. We see blessings. May the blessing of the Lord be upon you. Upon you and your children's children and for a generation. And our prayer as elders of this church and leaders of this church is that we would leave this place after the book of Philippians knowing that God is with us and he is for us in Christ Jesus. Because when you know he's with you and when you know he's for you, you will find contentment in him. I'm telling you, you will. You will. And these guys are going to sing. They're going to sing the song, of, the song that many of you will know. If you want to sit, listen, and pray, bring your discontentment, your anxiety, your disunity, all to the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name is above every name. Do that. But if you want to stand and raise your hands, if you want to appropriately respond in light of this, do that. This is a time, it's going to be about seven or eight minutes, this is a time where these guys will sing a song that we know and it is a benediction, it is a praise, a blessing upon us. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you. And we pray that in Christ, you will know his peace. And if you don't know that peace, please don't leave this place without asking us. What are you talking about? I want to know more about this Jesus. And then after that, when they finished, we will stand and we will all declare together through song that each and every one of us need Jesus. Bless us, keep us, make your face shine upon us, we ask for your glory's sake. Amen.